Welcome back. This is going to be part two of our look at the biggest mysteries in music. There was kind of a a lead-in for that last week. Um, don't really have much different lead-in this week. So without further ado, let's get into the next half of our list of strange mysteries within the music industry. So our first one comes to us from the mid-80s. There's this alternative rock band, and they're called the Maniac Street Preachers. Now, they had reached kind of moderate success. They were really starting to hit their own. And right at the beginning of 1995, a strange event happened. They were making these plans to go to America to do an American tour. On January 31st, Him and another bandmate go to a place called the Embassy Hotel. They're going to stay overnight before they go catch their plane to the United States. Only problem with this plan is their rhythm guitarist and lyricist, a guy by the name of Richie Edwards, would check out of the embassy on February 1st of 1995 and never be heard of again. Nobody was ever found to suggest that maybe he was killed, and a strange series of events started happening not long after his checkout from the hotel room that would suggest that maybe he ran away. But to this day, it's never been proven or figured out where Richie Edwards went. I'll go through what we do know about what happened to Richie Edwards. What we do know is he went back home to drop off some stuff. It was clear that some of the stuff he had taken with him to the hotel, he had dropped back off at his house. So we know that much. By February 2nd, their manager had filed a missing persons report. And for a little while, tips started to come in. Somebody said that they saw him at the passport office in Newport. On February 7th, a taxi driver says that he drove Richie from his house in Newport to a service station, Severn View Service Station. On Valentine's Day, they find Richie's Vauxhall Cavalier comes into a Severn service station and sits there. But it's reported abandoned by the 17th of February. It's clear that Richie probably might have been living in it because the batteries run down, there's pictures of his family, there's burger wrappers in the car, So there's a lot of stuff to suggest he may have been living in there. But of that information, they have never found him. Really hard to suggest that somebody could just disappear like that, especially somebody who is a celebrity, or for the most part a celebrity. At least enough people knew him that they would assumingly recognize him to see him. So that's a very strange mystery. Anyways, on to the next one. So... We're going to travel way, 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 way back to the very beginning of blues music. And in the very beginning of blues music, there was an artist by the name of Robert Johnson. Now, you see, there's a strange tale when it comes to Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson was born on May 11th, 1911, in Mississippi. At about the 
age of 16 or so, he started going to juke joints in the area and going and seeing local musicians. And he had a real, real feel about some music. Now, the boys who played at the juke joint said, you know, they'd let him play harmonica from time to time. And he'd always ask them, hey, you know, when you take a break, can I play the guitar? And they weren't really too eager about it. Every once in a while, they'd have a break or whatever, and they'd go out. A few minutes would go by, and patrons would come out and be like, hey, you know, can you stop this guy from playing his music? And it was because he was exceedingly terrible at playing the guitar. But to his credit, Robert kept trying to play the guitar, and even though the musicians would give him crap, and even though his dad would give him crap, you know, he kept trying until one day he finally just kind of had about enough of it, and he, he ran away. Now here's where the story gets real kind of spoopy. So, Robert Johnson disappears for about six months. After six months goes by, he returns again to these juke joints. And a few of these musicians catch eye of uh, Robert entering this club midway through their set. They decide between the two of them that they're going to let him play. They know he's going to ask, and Okay, we're going to let him play. We're going to make him, let him make a ass of himself. So as they finish up their set, of course, Robert Johnson comes up, asks if he can play, and they kind of like smirk to each other and, yeah, yeah, go ahead, do your thing. Well, he gets up on the stage and he starts playing. And if he isn't the best guitarist for blues that anyone's ever heard, these artists who let him up on the stage, their jaws dropped. But because of that, it seemed very clear that something wasn't quite right. Now, the idea is that Robert Johnson then went to learn how to play the guitar from a guy named Ike Zimmerman. But a lot of people seem to believe that Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil for the ability to play the guitar that well. And there was a lot to it. Not only... Did he make a lot of songs that kind of touched on stuff like that, with songs like Hellhound on My Trail, Crossroad Blues, and The Devil and Me Blues? You see, the idea was that Robert Johnson, he went and brought himself to a crossroads right around midnight, started playing a ditty on the guitar, and a big man in black came up to him, took the guitar out of his hand, tuned it a bit and gave it back to him, and all of a sudden... Robert Johnson had the ability to play the guitar. And it seemed to make a lot of sense because Robert Johnson died very early in life. Now, Robert Johnson died of a poisoning. But a lot of people thought it was the devil coming to get his due. And people who saw him the day he died made mention of things like, well, when I saw him, he was on his hands and knees barking like a dog. There's a lot of strange stuff that takes a lot of place here for one of the godfathers of blues music. Very interesting. Feel free to look into it. Uh, if you're a fan of Supernatural, you can even watch. They kind of touch on it a lot. The next one comes to us as more of a question leading into a mystery than anything else. So we all know that Kurt Cobain killed himself, the lead singer of Nirvana. But, a lot of things would start coming to light after his death 
that would suggest that instead of killing himself, he might have been murdered. Now, I know if you go through the history story, it'll say that Kurt Cobain was suffering from depression, he had addictions, and that caused him to kind of have an episode in which he took his own life. He wrote a suicide letter, and that's really the end of it. Or is it? You see, there's a lot of strange things that seem to happen around the whole death of Kurt Cobain. Now, for the sake of the conspiracy, I'm just going to go over a few of the things that lead a person to suspect that he may have been murdered. Now, let's start with the biggest catalyst out of all of this, and that is his wife, Courtney Love. Now, despite what anybody says, there was a problem between Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain, which was leading up to a divorce. That's evidence. We all know that exists. And should Kurt Cobain go through with this divorce, that would leave Courtney Love with no money. She'd be almost broke. Now, a lot would be to say that that's not really enough evidence to suggest that she killed him. I mean, people have killed people over money before, but there's more to it than that. When Kurt Cobain died, he was not in his house, in his room, in his bedroom. In fact, he was outside of his house, above his garage. And a lot of people would suspect that the reason why he was there to begin with was he was hiding. He was hiding from somebody that may or may not be out to get him. He was very kind of anxious the few days leading up to his death. The other thing to mention is that when they did his autopsy, they found that his body had so much heroin in it that it wouldn't make sense that he would be able to function a gun, let alone have the sense of mind to point it at himself and pull the trigger. He had 1.52 milligrams per liter of blood, and that is enough to pretty much render anybody unconscious. Then there's the matter of a man named Eldon Hoke. Now, you may not know who Eldon Hoke is, but he's another musician. He also claimed that Courtney Love offered him $50,000 to kill Kurt Cobain. And he told this to pretty much anybody who would listen. But as soon as the interview came live that he had said this, within a few days, he was dead. He got hit by a train and they considered it misadventure. That he was going home drunk and collapsed on the railroad tracks and the train had run him over. But for anybody considering that Courtney Love may have murdered Kurt Cobain, this seems like, well, damn, just too much evidence. And then there's the matter of the suicide note. And it was said that the suicide note was written in two different handwriting. Some of it was written in Kurt Cobain's, and some of it was written in somebody else maybe trying to forge his writing. So it's, it's all very skeptical and weird and doesn't make sense, and feel free to look it up, but who's to say whether Kurt Cobain killed himself or was murdered? Either way, Kurt Cobain died. Let's move on to the next one. The mid-90s was volatile with this fight between the East Coast rappers and the West Coast rappers. And it seemed to almost not but end completely with the death of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls. But it's Tupac's death that is the strangest out of the two. 
as not as much a mystery as to kind of if he died didn't die but it's who killed him why why didn't the police ever arrest anybody on the murder charges for Tupac Shakur we're going to dive into this right now on September 7th of 1996 Tupac Shakur arrived in Las Vegas to go see a Mike Tyson fight. He arrived with Suge Knight and his bodyguard, a guy by the name of Frank Alexander, who seems to kind of piece together a majority of the story. Now, as the story goes, Tupac goes to this fight. It lasts one round, Tyson wins. On the way out, one of Suge Knight's guys says something to Tupac, and Tupac takes off like a dart. His bodyguard follows quickly behind him, and when he catches up with Tupac, Tupac is fighting a guy named Orlando Anderson. The fight was broken up by hotel staff, and Tupac returned to the Luxor and started to get ready for, they were going to go out to uh, Suge's nightclub. So they ended up going over to Suge Knight's place to get ready to go out. And the deal was, was that Suge Knight was going to drive Tupac, and Tupac's bodyguard was going to drive Tupac's girlfriend's car behind them. They spent about a half an hour at Suge Knight's place and then left for the club in Suge Knight's BMW. Now here's where some kind of like sort of weird coincidental stuff starts happening, okay? Now keep in mind if they're traveling in Suge Knight's BMW, to anyone else riding around unless they knew what Chuck Knight's BMW looked like and who was in the vehicles, it'd be really hard to, because most times Suge was either with another artist or with bodyguards himself. Anyways, so while they're out driving towards the club, they're pulled over by a bicycle cop. And Suge Knight gets out of his car, opens up the trunk to show the cop something. The cop suggests, okay, you know what, things are fine. Suge Knight closes the back of the BMW hops back in and starts driving. But at the very next intersection is when everything happens. A white Cadillac pulls up to the passenger side of Suge Knight's BMW. An arm comes out, fires 14 shots into Suge Knight's vehicle. 14. That's a lot of bullets. I mean, it's not like a machine gun amount of bullets, but that's a lot from a handgun. 14 bullets is a lot, especially considering there's a window. Now, at this point, Tupac's bodyguard jumps out of his car to go help Tupac. But Suge Knight slams on the gas, hooks a U-turn, and starts burning it back the way they came, along with a bunch of other cars. But because Suge Knight's tire is blown out, he has to stop not far from where he took off. Now, keep in mind, while this all happens, they jump out of their vehicles, guns pointed at each other, ready to start firing, and now the cops are there. The cops are there while everybody is still present. Nobody's left. So that means when the cops get there, one of the people there has murdered Tupac. Because by the time they get to Tupac and get him out of the vehicle, he is done. He goes unconscious to keep him alive for a little bit on life support and then pull the plug. He never regains consciousness. Out of 
all 14 bullets fired into Suge Knight's vehicle, none hit Suge Knight. He's hit in the head with a piece of shrapnel that cuts him, but that is it. Now, the cops would say that, you know, when they went to go arrest everybody, they were all kind of having their little gun battle, and nobody really wanted to stand down. They were all being defiant, and then eventually everybody kind of was, they, they restored peace. But nobody was arrested in the murder or attempted murder of Tupac Shakur. And on top of that, when all was said and done, they even tried to say that, well, we tried to ask Tupac who shot him or who, if he knew who shot him, and he just said, F you, wouldn't tell us anything. And maybe that might be the case, but at the same time, you have them all there. They are all there. Now, some seem to think that he was murdered by Orlando Anderson, who was the guy he got into the scuffle with the fist fight earlier in the night. And that could be completely possible. Some people very much believe that Suge Knight had a huge hand in the murder of Tupac. And then some people actually happen to believe that Tupac never died. See, what happened was after Tupac's death, a lot of recordings from Tupac just kept coming out and flowing and coming out and coming out and coming out and new records and new mixes and all this stuff that people started to believe that it it would be impossible for Tupac to be able to record all that music before he died, that he would have had to still be alive recording music. He just didn't want to be in the public eye anymore or he feared for his life or whatever. So there's a lot of mystery around really... Why the cops never arrested anybody for the death of Tupac Shakur. Why they couldn't figure out who did it. I mean, he died in 96, not in 1952. And the idea of that he may still be alive. I don't really think that that's the case, but it is definitely a possibility. Now we're on to the last conspiracy, and by far my favorite of all conspiracies within the music industry. And it is the Paul is dead conspiracy theory. Now, I'm going to explain it to you, and you can join in with the fun that is this weird conspiracy that seems to make a lot of sense and make no sense at the same time. So, in the 60s, the Beatles were one of the biggest bands in the world. They were worth tons of money. And it's believed that in 1966, one of the members of the band, Paul McCartney, died in a car accident. And to save the band and the record company, they replaced Paul McCartney with somebody who had won a contest for a Paul McCartney look-alike. And that from that point on, he had lived Paul McCartney's life, but in reality, Paul McCartney himself was dead. It, in theory, is very believable. Because you figure that to have a band like the Beatles at that time, they made more money than anyone ever. And they made lots of it. The record label would hate to lose that kind of money. So it would make sense to save a band by replacing one member if you could pull it off. Now this whole conspiracy theory goes even more deeper by suggesting that the Beatles themselves, knowing that this person who's with them is not the real Paul McCartney, 
had decided to leave little bits of evidence within their albums to give real fans, people who were really connected with them, clues that Paul McCartney wasn't alive and this person wasn't him. And that these clues started out on the Sgt. Pepper album. Now, if you've ever seen the cover for Sgt. Pepper, it depicts a funeral for one, but that there was all these little things to insinuate that Paul was dead. His palm was uh, upwards on his forehead, which was depicting of a priest's burial rites. All the other band members had brass instruments, except for Paul McCartney. There was this idea of a three-string guitar that kind of gave the impression that Paul was broken. And then it was said that if you hold a mirror up to the logo on the drum, that it said, 11-9, he die, which represented the day in which Paul McCartney actually died. That was then followed up by the Abbey Road album. Now, if you've seen the cover for Abbey Road, that's where they're all walking across the crosswalk, right? And the reason that picture was taken like that was out of sheer laziness. They just walked out of the, the recording studio and whatever they had on, started crossing the road, took, an out, took a picture that was the album cover. But to these conspiracy theorists, it all meant something. And that the four guys walking across the street was a funeral procession. There was the gravedigger, the corpse, the priest... And The Undertaker. And what more than that was that Paul McCartney was the only person not wearing shoes. And that kind of seemed to be a symbolism for the fact that he wasn't alive. On top of that, the license plate on the back of the car reads 28IF, which basically was to stand for if Paul McCartney was still alive recording this album, he would have been 28 years old. Then there's the matter of Strawberry Fields Forever. The song, at the end of it, has a distorted bit of audio. And when asked about it, it was clear it was John Lennon's voice, so they asked John Lennon. And John Lennon said, well, I said cranberry sauce. But to the press, it sounded like he said, I'm very boring. And to the people who believe that Paul was dead, it sounds like he says, I buried Paul. Then came the Magical Mystery Tour. And when that album came out, they believed that all the band members are dressed as animals. And that Paul McCartney is dressed as a walrus because walrus is a symbolism for dying and death. Also, if you took the album, put it upside down, looked at it in a mirror, it gave a phone number. And if you called that phone number, that it would give you information about the Paul is dead whole idea. I don't know if that number would work then or now or what it is. I think the number works out to be 2317438. And of course, the White Album gave little to no clues, but the insert for it did. On the inside was a photo, a snapshot of someone and it's believed it happens to be this guy named William Campbell, who won the Beatles lookalike contest as Paul McCartney, and that 
the other picture of a guy being, I, I don't know, lowered into a bath is the autopsy photos after Paul McCartney had died. Now, a regular habit of the Beatles was to include or incorporate things into their albums that would be something you could find later and wasn't really that easy to catch. For example, the Beatles have a song named Girl, in which, in the background, they're saying the word tit over and over and over. And it got past censors, and they didn't really catch on to it, but that's what they're saying. At the end of uh, Sgt. Pepper, they had a dog whistle in there, which drove dogs nuts when you'd play the record. So it wasn't hard to believe that at the end of the song, I'm So Tired, the track kind of fades away, and Lennon is saying something sounds like nothing but gibberish. But when you played it backwards, it says... Paul is dead. I miss him, miss him, miss him. And it seemed to really stand out. And if you listen to it backwards, it kind of actually really sounds like that's exactly what he says. The cover of the album The Butcher featured all the Beatles kind of standing around, except for Paul McCartney was inside a like kind of like a footlocker. And to the theorists, they believed that this was to symbolize that Paul was buried underground, and the other three were alive. The album cover itself was then changed to a different one where they're all kind of sitting together, and then that led more to the belief that maybe things might not be what they seem. Just all these little clues seem to point to the fact that Paul had died and that it had been covered up and he had been replaced by somebody. Of course, later on in the 70s, during an interview, Paul McCartney kind of said, well, you know, that's that makes no sense. And people who think that should really give their head a shake. They should look at themselves more than to be worried about all this stuff that doesn't seem to make any sense. But then to a complete polar opposite of that is that John Lennon loved the, the whole theory. And he played on it in numerous songs. There was a song that he sang and a line in he says that Paul is the walrus. And then there's another song that he kind of wrote as a kind of Paul McCartney diss track kind of thing before there was diss tracks. And he said them freaks was right when they said that he was dead. So it, like there's a lot of stuff to really fuel the fire of whether this whole kind of conspiracy thing even exists. But it's so interesting and intricate and there's so many possibilities to it that it's like, well, I mean. If I was a record company and, and one of the members of the biggest band in the world died, of course I'd replace it. Ridiculous. But at the same time, it's like, well, well, that's not what happened. Or is it? And to me, I just don't know. I mean, these clues seem to point enough evidence at it that it's like, hmm, now I could see something there. Because the Beatles were like that, odd like that. But at the same time, it's completely possible that it's all just minor coincidence or people taking things and kind of fitting them together their own way just to make sense of it, because that's what people need to do. But anyways, that was this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed these mysteries. I'll catch you back next week with a brand new episode about an artist. I already have somebody in mind. So I'll see you next week and we'll continue growing together.